Well, hey, Church of the Beloved, uh, so glad that you're joining in uh, for our online service today. I can't believe it's already week 10 of having these online services, but nonetheless, we're so glad that you're uh, tuning in as we continue in the series in Colossians chapter 2 today. Um, I don't know if you guys ever had this experience, but uh, you ever travel somewhere and uh, maybe go on a vacation and go on a honeymoon and you, you experience some amazing food, authentic food, local to that particular place. And you, it's so good that when you come back from that trip, you're looking everywhere to find something that can taste just like it. Um, and, and so you order it, you go to that restaurant where you live and you just taste it and you realize that, you know, it's just not the same. Not like the way you tasted it uh, in that place where you took a visit. See, for me, that was Hawaiian poke, right? Eight years ago, my wife and I, we went to Hawaii for the first time. It was our honeymoon, and, uh, and we got to experience some amazing poke. If you've never had it, basically it just, it literally means cut up fish or sliced fish, and they marinate it a little bit, and you can eat it with rice, but they would in Hawaii sell it in the supermarkets where you can get it at restaurants. And I remember being in Hawaii, and my wife and I, we were just blown away. I mean, it was so good, right? And we came back to the mainland from that trip, and we were so excited to have more poke. And so we would go and visit the poke shops around our area, and it just wasn't the same, right? You probably, you probably know what I'm talking about. It just wasn't the same. And when we would go to these mainland poke places, what we found is that not only did they kind of decrease the amount of fish, which is the main thing, but they would add all this extra stuff onto it, right? And we have these in Chicago as well. But you, you would add, you know, edamame and cucumber and seaweed and fish eggs and carrot slices and ginger and radish and, and all these things. And it um, just wasn't the same. I want to read you something that I found uh, in an article from the Washington Post titled, Hawaiian Poke Has Never Been Trendier but the mainland is ruining it. Okay, I'm just going to read this for us. This article says, It has never been easier to get poke from the, um, the marinated raw ahi tuna, that is the unofficial food of Hawaii, on the mainland. You'll find the dish in Minnesota, Indiana, and Colorado. There's poke from Pittsburgh to Arizona. You can buy poke kits in grocery stores, and you don't even have to leave your house for it in Chicago. Homesick Hawaiians must be thrilled, right? Sonny Acosta, who moved to New York from Honolulu two years ago, said, I tried one, and I swore never to go again. This is what he said. It's not really poke. It's not just that the poke tastes better when you're in Hawaii. It's that mainland restaurants have changed it into something altogether different. Shops in Washington are putting corn in it. I mean, that's got to be illegal. Like, you just don't... Like, you don't do that. You don't put corn with your fish. They're topping it with kale, kale, exclamation mark. They're putting the fish on top of zoodles or zucchini noodles as customers order down a line like it's a Chipotle restaurant. They're adding a sprinkle of cilantro or even sweet strawberry sauce. This mainland poke looks different from what you'd find in restaurants and grocery stores on the islands. In Washington, shops are offering more toppings than in a frozen yogurt bar. One native Hawaiian said this, friends don't let friends eat fake poke, all right? And, um, and I just wanted to read that to you because, 
And you might be wondering, what's the point of that story, right? The point is this. The point is that even with food, you can take something that's original and authentic and delicious and incredible, and just by adding to it, you, you can make, you could turn it into something that it's actually never intended to be. In other words, this is, this is what I'm saying. By adding to it, you're actually subtracting from it. By adding all the carrots and the edamame and the seaweed and the corn and the kale, I don't know why you would do that, but by adding to it, you're actually subtracting from it. I share this story because this is what we're uh, looking at in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and on. The church in Colossae were dealing with religious influences and religious leaders, these false teachers, if you will, that were teaching the Christians at Colossae that, hey, Jesus is great, but you need more. Jesus is good, but he's not enough. They taught that if you really wanted to be spiritual, then you have to add on top of Jesus. You've got to do what we do, they said. And so um, what we're looking at today is this, that Paul gives us warning to the church, and basically he's saying this, by adding to Jesus, you're subtracting from him. By adding to Jesus, you're actually not experiencing Jesus. By adding to him, you're subtracting from him. If you guys didn't um, catch the tone of this passage that we read today, the tone of this passage is one in which Paul is giving a warning. And so when we read this passage, that's how we got to take it. We got to take it as a loving, pastoral warning to the church. A warning that Paul is giving to the Colossians, uh, Christians in Colossae against these three counterfeit connections, I call it. Counterfeit connections to God because they look spiritual on the outside, but they're really not spiritual. And the sales pitch of these counterfeit connections. The reason why it's so enticing and the the sales pitch is that if you don't do these things, then you're not devoted enough, then you're not spiritual enough, and you're not passionate enough. And so it makes you wonder, you know, then maybe if I do do these things, maybe if I do follow them, maybe I can be more devoted. Maybe I can feel more spiritual. And maybe I can feel more passionate. Maybe there's something more I have to do Right? You ever been there? You're walking with Jesus and he's telling you that you're accepted, you're approved, not by your works, but by his works. And when you see the cross, you see unconditional love. And yet we get into the temptation of feeling like we got to somehow prove it to him. Or we got to somehow owe something back. As if God's grace was not sufficient. And so we feel like maybe there's something more I got to experience. Maybe there's something more that I got to restrict in my life. Maybe I got to suffer a little bit more to feel closer to God. You know, these religious influencers in Colossae, uh, they targeted these Christians in Colossae. And what they basically did was they came up with this system or, or this ladder, if you will, in which, in a ladder in which you would climb, climb this ladder to have a deeper spirituality where God is here and we're here. And, and basically they said that Jesus is good. They said that you can actually start with him. They're, they're, not, they're not saying get rid of Jesus altogether. They're, they're saying he can be like step number one on the ladder. But they, they said you got to go higher. You got to do more. You got to add more rules. You got to be more devoted. And so they said that Jesus is good, but you got to keep climbing the ladder to actually get to God. And so by doing that, you know what they did is 
they, they, they taught or they gave this impression that they were up here on the top of the ladder and that the Christians in Colossae were down there. And anytime you have spiritual influencers who, who give that impression that they're on the top of the ladder, that breeds comparison, that breeds um, competition. And what it does is it actually causes judgment. It causes this impression and it makes others feel like, man, are you in or are you out? Are you there or are you here? Are, are you with us or are you going to just stay there with them? Are you close to God enough? That's why it's so enticing. And Paul, in verse 16, he says, let no one, no one means no one, including yourself. He says, let no one cast or pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In other words, don't let people, don't let these these, uh, religious influencers and false teachers, don't let them uh, question your devotion to God based on whether or not you follow their rules. So here's Paul's first warning. It's a warning against legalism. Legalism basically is this kind of life that's driven by laws and rules and restrictions. It it basically says that that you're not devoted enough unless you actually live and are driven by and follow and keep up with all these added rules. You see in in the church there, they were teaching about these rules regarding food and drink and uh, about festivals and Sabbath dates and is it this or is it that? Can we celebrate this? Can we celebrate that? Do you celebrate this? Do you celebrate that? See, in our day, you know, we, we might not fight over festivals and Sabbath dates, but this is still happening in our day. You know, it's, it's simply this. Legalism is simply a life that's driven by do's and don'ts. Your life is driven by rules. You're captive. You're, you're, you're in bondage by all the rules that you've set up in your life, thinking that if I just keep it up, that somehow I can earn God's love. And so you, you begin to ask the question, and legalists will, will say, well, am I allowed to drink this? Am I allowed to have some wine? Am I allowed to have a beer? You know, am I allowed to listen to this kind of music or that kind of music? Am I allowed to celebrate Halloween? Right? And believe it or not, these debates still go on in churches today. I remember in the 90s, I'm not talking about like 1790 or 1890, I'm talking about 1990s, mid-late 1990s, I visited a church where they didn't have a drum set because, it, and, I, and I come to find out, it's because they believed that drums were somehow connected to an ancient pagan worship. So they said, we're not going to have drums. And so they, that was one of their rules and one of their laws, and they were, they were, they were, in the, they were kind of messing around with legalism. And, and what's, what's sad about legalism is that when you start to live by your rules, you end up casting those rules on other people. You, you start to make other people conform because it's what you live by. And, and you start to compare and you start to condemn others, if, if, at least in your heart, if they don't follow your rules. And we start to judge people. Paul says, don't let anyone, don't let anyone judge you based on legalism. Someone described legalism like this. It's, it's like someone that has a yard, a backyard or a front yard, and, 
and, and you, you, you get to enjoy this yard, and in, in order to protect your yard, you, you have a fence, and this, this fence is a good thing. It allows boundaries. It, it allows where you can begin and where you can end. It, it, it lets you know kind of what your, what your area is and where you can walk freely in. But then legalism is when you stop trusting in the, this particular fence, and so you start to build your own fences. And so what happens is within this fence, you build another fence, and you go, well, I'm just going to build another fence. In order to protect that fence, I'm going to build another fence. And so it's a fence upon a fence upon a fence, and what happens is it's no longer a yard, it's a prison. And you can't even enjoy your yard because you've built all these fences, And that's what legalism is like. It's this counterfeit connection. It's not authentic. It's not a real connection to God. It's a counterfeit connection that makes you think you're close to God, but it's only focusing on the externals. We talked about last week about being rooted in Christ. Someone who's legalistic is someone that just only focuses on the surface and not what's in the soil. I think about the Pharisees who walked around in the times of Jesus and they religiously washed their hands before they ate. They, they felt like if they didn't wash their hands, then whatever food they would touch would be unclean and the, or the food would be unclean and it would come into their mouth and into their body and it would make them unclean. And they didn't wash their hands religiously because of COVID-19. They washed their hands religiously because they were focused on external cleanliness And then Jesus comes around, and he knew the Jewish law. He knew it pretty well. And he tells the Pharisees, he basically says, you know, it's not not what you touch with your hands that make you unclean. Jesus says, it's what's in your heart and what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. And what he's saying is the the, the issue is not on the outside. The The issue is on the inside. And the Pharisees, they didn't get it. And so they just kept on washing their hands and washing their hands and washing their hands. And on the outside, it doesn't look like a problem, right? And I love what John Piper, Pastor John Piper said. He said that legalism is a dangerous disease because it doesn't look like one, right? Like it doesn't look like there's anything really wrong with it. But the issue is it doesn't connect you to God. So the question is, why would someone actually want to go down that road of legalism? The question for me is, like, why why is this even a thing? Why is this even happening today? Why are there so many legalistic, I would say even believers, who are so just driven by rules and restrictions and laws, and there's no joy in their life, they're rigid, they, they want people to follow their standards, and if they don't, they judge them. Why? Would people want to follow this? Why would want someone want more rules in their life? And here's why. Because legalism doesn't just get at what you do. You see, legalism gets at why we do it. See, legalism at its root makes us believe that by doing and by keeping up with my laws and the rules that I can somehow keep or earn or maintain God's favor, God's love, God's blessing in my life. It's about keeping up with the external appearance of if I do this, then at least I'll get some, uh, you know, um, uh, approval from the church or from other people with having this appearance of godliness. And it makes us feel like we're achieving something, doesn't it? 
if you, if you have these rules and you're keeping it up, it makes you feel like you're actually climbing up the ladder. It gives us a, a sense of uh, spiritual security. It's a false one. It's not a real one, but it feels like insurance. You know, it's, it's one of those where, it, you know, it just allows me to cover all my bases just in case Jesus is not enough. And it, it makes us feel closer to God. And it's not really, but it makes you feel like it. And in reality, it, it actually drives you away from God. And I want you to hear me out, church. And I'm not, what I'm saying is that I'm not saying that laws and rules are bad. In fact, one of the most loving things parents can do is teach a kid some rules and some don'ts and do's. But you never want your kid to be driven by those. So it's not that the rules in itself are bad, but it's, it's how we use the rules. It's what motivates the rules. You know, someone that's legalistic is, 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 is not just someone that's just trying to keep up with the rules and, and it's just only personal to them. But what happens is with legalism, you know, it's basically like I, I'm going to put these standards on other people. I'm going to put it on my small group. I'm going to put it upon uh, other people. I'm going to put it upon my, my church. And what happens is we start to judge them if they don't do it, Right? And, and because we think that this is what it means to be devoted to God. We're always comparing with other people. We're competing with other Christians. You know, and it's the kind that wants to show how much we have kept up with in order to find and seek validation. And Paul is warning them. Paul, in this text, says, you know, don't accept it. Reject their judgment. Don't let anyone make you feel inferior because of the rules that they have set up. And I think this is a healthy, a healthy warning for the church, a loving and pastoral warning for the church, for you, for me today, to not only be careful and mindful and watchful that there are legalism uh, uh, tendencies out there, but there's also legalistic tendencies in us. That when Paul says, let no one judge you, I don't think it's just about other people because oftentimes I, I, I find myself in a place where I don't think anyone's knocking on my door questioning me about Sabbath and festivals and about this or that. I think if, if I were honest the one that judges me the most is my own self. I think Paul is also warning us to not fall into the trap and become a legalist, become someone that starts to judge and force other people to obey your standards and cast the shadow upon them. Paul says this. He says, don't let anyone judge you. What he's saying is these laws and these rules and regulations that they live by, he says in verse 17, these are just a shadow of the things to come. But he says, but the substance belongs to Christ. There's something powerful there. I didn't understand it. I, I still am trying to figure this out. Well, there's something powerful there in verse 17. He says, he says, the law was just a shadow, but the reality is Christ. In other words, the shadow is just something that points to the reality. It's not the reality. In other words, the shadow is not Christ, right? The shadow was just a law that pointed to the reality, which is Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is, don't get caught up in the shadows. Get involved in the substance. He's saying, don't, don't live your life and waste your life chasing and keeping up with the shadow. He's saying, Christ has come. You've received him. He says, get involved with the substance. He says, get involved and get rooted and start growing 
and hold fast to Christ because he's the one that the law was pointing to. In other words, the law was trying to point the reality that you and I, we can never keep up with the law. There, there, there aren't enough rules that we can keep up with that will merit or earn our love for God. There is only one who actually kept every law. There is only one who actually fulfilled every law, and that's Jesus Christ. And 2,000 years ago, what Paul is saying is that he came and he lived that perfect life. He fulfilled the law. He was the substance and the shadow pointed to him. And so Paul is saying is don't get caught up in the shadow, but get involved with the substance. Matthew 5.17 says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. This is Jesus speaking. Or the prophets. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Paul's point here is this. That when you are driven and you're walking with Jesus, you don't have to establish all these extra rules and regulations. And and you don't have to, in your own power, keep up with the law. Because Jesus, who has fulfilled the law, if he lives in you, then your role is just to walk in him and walk with him. And what happens is he equips you. He enables you. He empowers you to fulfill the law that he has commanded before us. He causes obedience in our lives. The second warning that Paul gives is not only against legalism, but the second warning is against mysticism. Mysticism, he goes on to say um, in verse 18, it says, let no one disqualify you, let no one disqualify you, meaning let no one condemn you, other translations say, or let no one order you around, you know, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. I want you to think about the picture, the imagery, what he's trying to get at. See, he's trying to get at these, this pursuit of spiritual experiences that are apart from Christ. Just spiritual experiences that are very mystical, that have a lot of flash, but there's no Jesus. And so if legalism said you're not devoted enough, then mysticism said you're not spiritual enough unless you actually do what we do. So therefore, what they said is, What you need is a deeper pursuit of spiritual experiences. You need to climb that ladder of spiritual experiences. You need to worship with the angels. You need to have visions. You need to have dreams in order to be closer to God. These are people in verse 18, it says, they would go on in detail about their visions. And they would would brag or boast about their visions, giving this impression that somehow these, uh, these religious influencers had a special connection or a special communication with God as if they had a, a backstage pass to God or as if they had some kind of VIP pass to God, as if they had God's direct phone number or God's direct Zoom link and they can connect with God anytime. And, and then the rest of us, we just have his email or we just have his website. And so they're saying, no, 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 you need to climb up that ladder. You need to get more and more uh, spiritual experiences in your life because otherwise you're not spiritual enough. And this is so hard to um, resist at times because, because when someone says, you know, I, man, I had a dream, I had a vision, and it's from the Lord, and you need to have this vision, you need to have this dream, how do you disprove that? If someone says to you, you know, I had a vision, how do you say, no, you didn't? Like if someone says, man, I had a dream 
from God. How do you say, no, you didn't? And so what, what it makes you feel like is, man, they must be, they must be on another level that I'm not on. They, they must be so in tune with God that they're having visions and dreams. And you can't disprove it. And so what it makes you feel like is, maybe I'm not as spiritual. And, you, and you're letting man determine who you are in God. You're letting man determine your value and worth to God. And you're saying, well, then maybe I need to have more of these. Maybe I need to worship with angels and have more visions and have more dreams. These, these guys were giving the impression that, that somehow they were on the varsity team of experiencing God and everybody else was just JV. That if you don't have these spiritual experiences that you're somehow not enough. And the trouble is that on the, on the surface... It looks very spiritual. I mean, think about it. It's, it's actually the pursuit of spiritual experiences. But here's the thing. It's instead of give me Jesus, it's give me a vision. Instead of give me Jesus, it's give me a miracle. Instead of give me Jesus, give me an angel. Instead of give me Jesus, give me a word. Instead of give me Jesus, give me a dream. Instead of give me Jesus, it's give me something supernatural. It's not give me Jesus, it's give me a burning bush. And so do you see the, the, the challenge with this? That it looks spiritual on the outside, but the problem is that it creates this ladder that doesn't lead to Jesus. And you're having this, this pursuit, you're driven by a pursuit of mysticism and feeling spiritual and having experiences and you're climbing this ladder, you're excited about a dream, you're excited about a supernatural work, but it's not leading you to Jesus. He says, Paul says that these people are puffed up, right, puffed up without reason by sensuous mind. Other translations call it an unspiritual, translated unspiritual mind. In other words, what Paul's saying is that they're not more spiritual He's saying they're actually unspiritual. He's saying they don't have the spirit of God. The reason why they don't have the spirit of God is because they're not connected to God. Because these spiritual experiences are for the sake of an experience, but not the sake of getting closer to Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is that these people, they're actually disconnected from the head. They're not connected to Christ. So he's giving this warning, don't hold fast to those things. He's saying hold fast to the head. What Paul is saying is, you know, these people are holding fast to a vision, holding fast to a spiritual experience, holding fast to a word that they feel like they got, holding fast to a dream, but they're not holding fast to Christ. Paul is saying, where's Jesus in that all? He's saying, hold fast to Jesus. You see, here's, here's the thing. Religion is what happens when relationship doesn't. See, religion is just what happens when relationship doesn't. Or religion is what exists when relationship doesn't. And so because you're not connected to God and you're not connected to the head, the only way you can feel spiritual is by connecting to religious experiences. Well, I, well, I, I must be connected to God because I, you know, I, I saw a miracle. I, I felt this or I heard this. And it's like, you sure? But where is Jesus? See, the, the warning here Paul is trying to give is saying, stay away from religion and walk in relationship. He's saying, I want you to watch your life. Make sure that you, you, your relationship with God is there. Make sure that's happening. 
Because if you don't have a relationship happening, the default is religion. You start pursuing the wrong things. Paul charges them, hold fast to the head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and, uh, uh, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows. He's saying the only way someone can really grow spiritually is not by having more visions. He's saying it's the only way someone grows spiritually, only way a life can transform is if they're connected to Christ the head. He's the one that holds us. He's the one that knits us. He's the one that causes every ligament and every joint together. He's the one that structures and strengthens. He's the one that roots us. He's the one that causes us to grow. He's saying if you're not holding fast to him, you can't grow. And so Paul's charging the Christians in Colossae, um, and he's saying make sure you hold on to him because he actually holds on to you. And I'm not saying that, um, and I want you to hear me out, I'm not saying that all spiritual experiences are bad. In fact, spiritual experiences in Christ are incredible. Spiritual experiences, I've I've, I've experienced many, but but I've also been in circles in my Christian ministry life and with other churches where I've also felt the pressure to conform to a particular kind of religious experience. This pressure to have dreams and pressure to have visions and pressure to be more supernatural, pressure to, 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 to be a miracle worker. And I realize that I am none of those things, but God is. And what I need to do is not pursue those things. What I need to do is pursue God. And so Paul's saying, stay connected to the head. He's saying, our hope for spiritual growth is cleaving to Christ. And this letter is Paul saying to the church in Colossae, do not let anyone disqualify you from holding fast to Christ because that's where you grow. And I want you to think about how amazing this this is for Paul to say it because if there's anyone that can boast about spiritual experiences, you know who it would be? It would be Paul. Paul is not speaking as someone who's outside of spiritual experiences He's speaking as someone who's experienced it all. On the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, Jesus appears to him. He catches a vision. He hears the words of Jesus. He experiences after conversion, miracle after miracle after miracle. He actually talks about in Corinthians about having a vision where he's caught up in the third heaven. But what I notice about Paul in his letters is that he doesn't boast and glory in the experience. He's always pointing people back to Jesus. With all the incredible spiritual experiences he's ever had, he doesn't boast in the experience. He boasts in Christ Jesus. He boasts in the cross. And he's saying, don't get caught up in that, but get caught up and hold fast to Christ. What he's saying is that Jesus is the true treasure, not the experience. Hold fast to Jesus. Walk in relationship with him. Not pursuing after rules and regulations or spiritual experiences that are apart from Christ. The last warning that Paul gives is the warning against asceticism. Asceticism. 
He says, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world? Do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch according to human precepts and teachings. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But he says, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, asceticism is basically this excessive and extreme rejection of even beautiful and good things in the name of being more holy. It's this life where you uh, avoid anything that looks enjoyable. It's the spirituality that purposely says, I'm going to suffer in order to feel closer to God. And so I'm going to just restrict myself of anything that is good. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. It's do not handle, do not touch, do not listen, do not do that. And it's like someone going on a strict diet. And cannot eat and enjoy the pleasure of a nice T-bone steak. Amen? And it's, it's like someone that's saying, I'm just going to restrict myself because I'm going to prove that I'm spiritually fit. You know, and, and I don't know about you, but I've been on these strict diets in my life before. And I just want to, you know, just want to remind you that, you know, at least for me, like it just doesn't work. I don't know if it's worked for you, but I've come to realize it doesn't work. It doesn't last, but somehow I keep coming back to it. And I fall into the same trap. If I just strict, have a strict diet, then I'll be good. But I realize that strict diets don't, don't actually work, right? And, um, and I can tell you firsthand, man, I love to eat. You know, in this quarantine, in this shelter in place, man, it's so hard not to eat everything in the kitchen, Right? And it's, I mean, like for me, like I need a mask, not just outside of my home. I need a mask inside my home so that I don't need everything in sight. You know, assuming that I'm not going to eat the mask, right? And I just, like I need someone to tape my mouth together so that I don't keep eating. Strict diets just don't work, right? But we do it anyway because we feel like we're making some progress. Because we we do it because we feel like we're climbing the ladder. We're, We're reaching some kind of goal. And here's what I'm trying to say with the diet. See, what we need is not a change in diet. See, what we need is a change in appetite. What we need is we need a new palate. What we need is a new hunger. What we need is a new desire. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 23. He says, by these restrictions and causing self-suffering, he says, that's no value in stopping you from the indulgence of the flesh. What he's saying is, Rules and restrictions don't change the heart, but Jesus does. He's saying he changes our appetite. He gives us a new desire. He puts a new hunger. See, guys, spiritual growth and Christ-like maturity, life transformation doesn't just come by knowing what to avoid. It comes by knowing what to pursue. Paul's saying pursue Christ You don't focus on the problem. You focus on the one who conquers the problem. You focus on Christ, right? And the gospel is basically saying this, that you don't have to suffer and suffer purposely because the gospel says that Jesus came down from heaven to earth. He came down the ladder and he suffered for me and he suffered for me so that I can be holy. And so my suffering doesn't make me holy. His suffering makes me holy. And so he's saying what we need 
need is not more rules and restrictions. What we need is the gospel. What we need is the, is the good news of Jesus. What we need is the understanding that Jesus suffered it all for me. He, by his works, made me holy. And now I don't have to pursue restrictions. I can pursue relationship. See, religion becomes a substitute for relationship when we stop believing that we are unconditionally loved. I don't know if you guys got that, but if you don't believe that you are unconditionally loved, you will stop relationship and you will enter religion. Because what religion says is, well, I will put conditions then and I will, I will go the extra mile. I will keep the law. I will experience this. I will suffer that. I will not do this. I will not do that. Because you don't believe or you haven't received the unconditional love of God. So here's what happens. When you don't receive the unconditional love of God, you end up enduring religion instead of enjoying relationship. That's huge. I know I'm, I'm coming to a close here and I'm past my time, but I want you to hear that part, that if you do not receive the unconditional love of God, you will end up enduring religion instead of enjoying relationship with him. Friends, that's what God is calling you to, to enjoy a relationship with him, not to endure religion. If I can ask the praise team to come up. You know, my wife and I, our our eight-year anniversary is coming up this week, and I thought about just the marriage and the joy of being married and having someone that you can do life with that where you don't have to worry about whether or not this person loves you. There's a level of security there and the joy of being able to enjoy that relationship and not feeling like I need to secure it. You know, what would marriage be like if, if, that, if a spouse woke up every single day fe- feeling like there must be something I need to do to keep this up. There must be something that I need to do in, o- in order to earn this person's love. Or there must be something I can do more or don't do in order to receive more of this person's love. And so instead of enjoying that relationship, you start to do things to secure the relationship. And you know, on the outside, it might produce a wonderful spouse. Because that spouse might do all the right things, say all the right stuff, do all the chores, right? Perfect, flawless on the outside. But on the inside, that spouse, that person is dying because that person has no joy. That person has to wake up feeling like by my own effort, I have to keep this up. Never gets to enjoy the relationship. Never understands unconditional love. And so I have to keep up and do this and have to do that. And But what if, what if you were that spouse that instead of having to earn it, you knew you were secure? You knew you had unconditional love. A spouse that said, man, I don't know how I got into this relationship. How is it that this person loves me even now? How is it that this person forgives me so many times? How is it that this person sees all my flaws, all my defects, and still loves me anyway? How? You know what happens to that person? That person would would develop a joy and a love that produces obedience, that produces a life that doesn't say, I have to do this for my spouse, but I get to and I want to because of unconditional love.
That spouse doesn't go around and say, I, I can now do whatever I want. I could abuse that freedom. But rather that, that spouse lives faithfully. That, live, that, that spouse lives joyfully because they're in a relationship that they can enjoy. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of Christ. The gospel says that we don't have to climb the ladder, that Christ came down that ladder. That we don't have to climb the ladder of legalism, mysticism, or asceticism. That Jesus came and he fulfilled every law. That Jesus came and he's the fullness of God. There is no one closer to God than Jesus himself, the son of God. That Jesus came and he suffered so that we don't have to. And so we can pursue a relationship with him. And so for us, I want to ask you this question as I close. You know, what would someone say about your life? Would they say, man, that person is just driven by rules and restrictions. They're just seeking spiritual experiences. Or would someone say about your life, man, I see Jesus in them. I see that Jesus is at the center of their life. So I want to close with this. My prayer for you, church, is that when someone looks at your life, it's not rules to my left and rules to my right, but it's Christ to my left, Christ to my right, Christ before me, Christ behind me, and Christ in me. That's my prayer for you. Would you bow your heads with me?